And welcome to the Seven Innings Podcast. I'm Michelle Smith, pinch hitting for Beth Mowens. We've got Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schroeder, Maddie Shipman, and Kayla Bro rounding out our lineup for today's episode. Ladies, we're going to have a lot of fun today. We're going to talk about a lot of different uh, items, as always, through our lineup. We're going to talk about the Knowles rolling in the leadoff. How about Jocelyn Allo with her chase of the home run record that she ties up? Coach Hutch, we're going to talk about the nutter coming up, and we're going to obviously shag some stats. So um, why don't we go ahead and jump in real quick and uh, and just get the ball rolling with the Knowles. Uh, Florida State looking really good in Clearwater. Amanda, uh, what did you see out of not just Florida State, but the uh, the tournament in general? Well, Michelle, I know you worked so hard as well as so many other people to put the tournament together. So I just thought that it was awesome. The energy, the atmosphere, the games, the schedule, like all the things like you just can't ask for anything more in February. So super appreciative of all the um, hard work and support that everybody put in to make that tournament. Awesome. And I I just can't believe it's over because we looked forward to it for so long Um, with FSU. Gosh, we got to see them, Michelle, their first game of the tournament and then their last game of the tournament. And they look the pretty much the same. I mean, maybe got better like at the last game, but they look so good their first game and then so good their last game and all parts of the game. Like they were attacking balls on defense. Their pitchers were throwing first pitch strikes, working from ahead. Their hitters were swinging freely. So I truly felt like FSU looked like one of the top two, three teams in the country. Um, and they were a ton of fun to watch this weekend, Maddie. Yeah, I think that they're a team that gets really consistent pitching in the circle, and then they have steady defense behind them. So you know that that confidence really helps one another. But what I really like about their offense is that they're going to beat you in a different way on any given day. You know, you look at one game and they're stringing together single after single after single, scoring one run at a time. And then you flip flop to another day and they're leaving the yard by about 50 40 feet. Uh, Michaela Enfield hit a ball last weekend that I don't think has landed quite yet. The entire stadium made the exact same sound effect with their mouth as soon as that ball left her bat. So I I really think that they're a potent offense that's going to create havoc on the base pads along with some really big sticks in their, in their lineup. I just want to give a little shout out to Ed Enfield because she might be one of the freshmen around the country who isn't putting up massive numbers like Olivia Johnson, right? We talked about her last week, but boy, is she getting it done? She was so impressive. Like from a catcher standpoint, just getting to watch that UCLA Florida state game. She's someone who I looked at and thought, man, she is the future of the program. She is so good. And it seems like she's the type of athlete who's going to get nothing but better. Um, As far as the Clearwater tournament, I just want to echo uh, Amanda, Michelle, just great job and Meg getting it together. But seriously, like, the love that you have for your community, Michelle, it really showed. And just the people, I thought, for those of you who, who weren't there, they had these volunteers in green shirts, a lot of old men, old women. And I said, you know, Florida's a retirement community. So these are like people 65 and up, and they all have their names on their shirt. Like Jack is in charge of the PA system and Bob is in charge of the scoreboard. And the pride that they had in their roles in Clearwater just really stood out. So that tournament, had such a postseason feel in February. I can't personally remember seeing a better or bigger game in February than that UCLA Florida State game on Sunday night. One thing that stood out to me, I was, I spent most of my time in a tent, not getting to watch games, just interviewing players, right? And at the end, our very last question that we asked every single person who came in the tent was, 
pride in their conference. So we asked like, it'd be Madison Shipman, finish this sentence, SEC softball is. And for the SEC, everyone talked about how, how they were the biggest and the deepest. They had pride in that. The Big Ten talked about academics and tradition. The PAC, they just really wanted to rely on their laurels. We're the champions. That's all they had to say, really. But the ACC was hands down who stood out to me in the tent because they were preaching how everyone is scared of them, that they're the future. And I think Florida State was the very first team that kind of put them on the map, but the Clemsons and the Dukes, for me, this tournament really showed me that the ACC is on the rise and they're coming for everyone. And then I just need to give a shout out to Northwestern. I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit later, but boy, did they impress me. And boy, am I excited to see them at the Mary Nutter coming up this weekend. Okay, Kayla, if we've left anything else, I'm coming to you. Sorry. Well, Jen, you just gave me so many chills. First of all, for the tournament and just the um, overall feeling that you got from the volunteers. I, I think I, I love that. And um, and then beyond that, the ACC, their their confidence, just the fact that they say they're next, they're the future. And that is confidence right there. I love that. Uh, teams should be afraid to play some of them. And teams should be afraid to play Northwestern. I was so stinking impressed with the Northwestern team. First of all, Danielle Williams in the circle is that good. She's got a filthy changeup, really quality movement coming in from the left side. I mean, she made some batters look stupid over the weekend. It was really fun to watch. And then beyond that, not only did they go and upset UCLA, they routed Clemson, but I thought they looked so mature. They just looked like they knew what they were doing. Their bats were strong. They were consistent. They went toe-to-toe with Faremo. They really challenged Valerie Cagle for Clemson. So I was just really, really impressed with the veteran feel that you got from Northwestern in a different way like than Florida State. You know, they didn't seem like as complete, but they were right there with Florida State pushing that complete team feel, defense, offense, and pitching in the circle. So it sounds like you guys are saying that um... – Amanda's uh, what we'll call it a prophecy might come true of a, a couple of uh, ACC teams showing up at the Women's College World Series. At least that's what it looks like here early in the season. So Washington goes four and one. We talked about Florida State at five and zero. Oh. Um, Northwestern three and one. USF a couple of surprises for me. So um, not that I'm not you know thinking that these teams are not on the radar, but the fact that they came in and did really good in in um, a tough tough. Uh, field USF at three and one Auburn. How about Auburn four and one Wisconsin again, played very well. They ended up three and three, but I was absolutely impressed. UCLA three and two Clemson three and two uh, Michigan two and two. And then a couple of teams that I was surprised on the downside that struggled a little bit, but were able to salvage part of the tournament was Tennessee at two and three Oklahoma state as well at two and three um, Notre Dame, but yeah, I think there were a couple teams as well with Texas and Texas Tech struggling. Neither of those teams able to pick up a win. So, you know, when you have a field of 16 teams and so many highly ranked, you know, you're going to get some great softball and some teams are going to struggle and some are going to do well. And I think uh, it ran the gamut in uh, in Clearwater this past weekend. And I appreciate everything that you guys say. I love this community. Um, Clearwater, the people are amazing. They work very hard and kudos to ESPN production, ESPN events for putting all this on uh, the city of Clearwater and Pinellas County, because there are people working year round, even though it's a four day tournament, they're, they're working 365 to make sure it goes off really, really well. So that's a recap of the same. Michelle, I just wanted to say one yeah. last thing, just give yeah. UCLA a shout out, because I think that they played really well this weekend, even despite 
despite the fact that they lost two games, walk-offs and extra innings, but they lost Aaliyah Jordan. She went down this weekend. We're yet to find out her results, but that could have easily been something where they folded in that Sunday game. Maybe, you know, with the way the FSU was playing, they did, they might not have showed up or played great, but, um, Aaliyah Jordan is such a good leader. You could see her in the dugout, just not letting them fall down, not letting her injury be a distraction. So I thought that UCLA really rallied around that injury, Jen. Yeah. And just to build off of that, Holly Acevedo guys, man, did she come in and she had to have been throwing the ball at four, maybe five different speeds, which really stuck out to me when UCLA decided to take Framo out of that game. I actually didn't personally agree with the call. Uh, yeah, it was the third time through the lineup, but if you remember, she entered the game against Mudge. So Kaylee Mudge's third at bat and in Kaylee Mudge's at bat before she caved her on three pitches and it was an ugly at bat. They decided to pull Megan, enter Holly, but I think that Holly's growth in this tournament really stuck out on multiple levels, and I was very impressed with her. So just a little shout out to her. Yeah, I agree, and I think um, down the road, they're going to absolutely need Holly Acevedo, so I think that the experience here in Clearwater is going to reap dividends down the road to help Faremo out. Um, and and to your point as well, I, you know, Faremo does not have the changeup that Holly has, so I think that I think that it was a good call bringing her in. The other thing I would like to say about the two losses UCLA did have, they were both eight inning uh, international tiebreak losses where they were the visiting team. And, you know, there is a lot of debate on uh, if that's an advantage or disadvantage to be a, uh, the home team uh, in international tiebreak. So a really good showing by UCLA playing some, some tough teams. Um, and, and I think maybe next year we need to have a complete uh, seven innings podcast on just the recap of the tournament because it was a lot of action, 40 games in four days, and uh, just a lot of stuff going on in Clearwater. So, why don't we go ahead and uh, roll down into the number two spot? And we're going to go and talk about uh, for the good of the game. We're going to talk a little bit about the strike zone, time between pitches, and of course, the safety bag that you were talking about, Amanda, um, with the injury. Um, and we've seen a couple of injuries. So, let's talk a little bit about the strike zone, some of the different things that we've seen. And, and um, I'll just I'll just put it right out there. I, I'm a, and it's not because I'm a pitcher. I was also a hitter as well, but I think our sport, we've done so much to give the advantage to the hitters over the last 10 years. I think we need to start really looking at the strike zone and giving the benefit of the doubt on close pitches to the pitcher. Uh, just my opinion. Um, and it has to do a lot with pace of play, but also for the safety of, of the pitchers and the corners I just think the game moves a lot better when the strike zone's a little larger. We don't watch this game to see hitters go up there and walk. We watch this game to see hitters go up there and swing. What do you think, Amanda? Yeah, I um, completely agree with you. I know that we talked about that a lot. It just is like there are more walks. The games are longer. The pace of play is so different. And when there are more walks and fewer strikes and there are more conferences because the coaches are coming out and more pitching changes like that one thing, a smaller strike zone leads to several things that leads to longer games. And one thing that people love about our sport is the pace of play. So you also mentioned time in between pitches and it just seemed like at times and maybe it's because Michelle, you, Beth, and I had two three and a half hour long games 
the pace of play seems so slow, like significantly slower than in years past. And so there did seem to be more time in between pitches and again, more conferences. So I think that that was just something that really stuck out to us, just going, making sure that the umpires are enforcing that, um, the time in between pitches rule. Um, and also, you know, just to consider maybe a clock on the field, like they do in international play, like maybe that's something that we could incorporate. Um, but I think with all the collisions, I don't know, the, the safety bag just seems like it's something that we need. I, I feel like it's happening six, seven times a weekend right now. Yeah. And let me interject real quick. The, the time between pitches, the rule is it's 10, 10, five, right? So it's broken out into those three segments. It's 10 seconds to step on the pitching plate. It's 10 seconds to take the signal and bring your hands together. Once your hands come together, you have five seconds to deliver the ball. So it's 25 seconds, which, you know, if we were to sit here with 25 seconds of silence, it would feel like an eternity. Um, and when pitchers are using all 25 seconds, it does feel like an eternity. So it, it does break down also the fact that if you, if you get on the rubber, your hands come together, and let's say that that only took 10 seconds, you still only have five seconds to deliver the ball. But I do think you're right. I mean, in international play, we have a clock on the field. It's very visible for everybody to see, the umpires to see. And when it runs out, it's obvious that um, there's an infraction. So I think that that's someone, something that could be added. But I'm interested in hearing from, um, and Jen, I know you're going to go both ways as a catcher, but but Maddie and Kayla, what you think about as hitters um, uh, about this, the strike zone. So I want to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but throughout this weekend in particular, it was the low part of the strike zone that I think wasn't getting called consistently. And I remember that strike zone, of course, we all know goes down to the knees and there were several times, of course, I was not a pitcher, but I'm sitting back going, man, I would want that called. And if I was on defense, if I was the pitcher, I would want those pitches called because to make an adjustment, you're going to have to bring that ball up to about mid thigh. And that's the sweet spot. For a lot of these batters, that's exactly where they want it. So there were some really, really good pitches that were on the corner of the plate, right about knee high, that were not getting consistently called for strikes. So to your point, the pitchers are having to make these constant adjustments. And then you add on to it just the, the the pace in between pitches. And I know it almost seemed like that was kind of a strategy to make some batters uncomfortable with how long in between pitches was happening. Um, but it, it is interesting on the flip side talking to some of these coaches about how they like to have their pitchers have that faster rhythm in between pitches. So I think you're seeing kind of two different schools of thought on that. Um, I know like Florida state was taking a little bit longer in between pitches, but then you look at a Northwestern uh, it, part of their strategy, they don't use the armbands um, because they want their pitchers looking up at their catcher. They want them looking up at the batter really engaged in the game and, and having that fast pace in between pitches. Yeah, I agree with you, Madison. I love the Northwestern mentality. I think, I mean, granted, I'm not a pitcher, but to be able to just connect with your catcher and with the game at a different level like that, I think is really important and something that teams are missing in the last few years that it's really gone to straight armband to the dugout. Uh, going back to the conversation about the strike zone, the most important thing to me as a batter is that the strike zone's consistent. So if we get to a place where the strike zone, yes, it might be a little bit wider, a little bit lower, um, whatever it may be, as long as it's consistent, I can adapt to that and I can make sure that I have quality at bats because my knowledge is going to be there. The hardest thing about a hitter, and I'm sure it's the same with a pitcher, is when you get an inconsistent strike zone and one time it's a ball and then the next time you go up and it's a strike. That is the most frustrating thing. So for me, make it what it needs to be to make the game go fast, to make it efficient, to um, 
give an equal benefit to both the hitter and the pitcher, but make sure it's consistent. I had three things written down for this topic, knowing we were speaking about it. Number one was consistency, Kayla. I completely agree. And I think that isn't just for a hitter. That's for the defense as well, right? For me as a catcher, I want to know, like from a, from a framing standpoint, I'm not going to stick a pitch for very long that I know is going to be a strike because I've always developed a, or I've already developed a relationship with the umpire behind me that we already both know the strike zone, right? And that helps the pace of play. When I know a ball that hits the corner of the plate on the outside is going to be a strike, I, I don't stick it as long. And I toss it right back to the pitcher because I know it's automatically going to be a strike. The second thing that I had written down was how to converse with an umpire, because you guys look at this from a pitcher perspective and a hitter perspective, but I'm looking at this from a catcher's perspective. And to me, there is nothing worse than for me personally, there's nothing worse than a catcher who isn't helping her pitcher in her defense as much as she can be helping them. So what really stuck out to me this weekend were catchers that were setting up and shifting their body way outside of the strike zone. And then the ball clips the plate, but because the catcher's body is on the outside part of the strike zone, they're not getting that call. The movement a catcher has can impact the strike zone. Should it? No, but does it? Yes. Then I was seeing so many catchers physically turning around to have conversations with umpires asking about the strike zone. So for me, it's knowing how to develop that relationship with an umpire that's going to help the pace of play, help the pitchers and help the defense. And then the third thing I had written down was armbands. Cause Michelle, you tell me that there's 10 seconds to take the sign. If we all right now were to say, Maddie, five, four, three, two. And then you were to repeat five, four, three, two. We're at 15 seconds already. So there is no way we're hearing these numbers being repeated three times, four times. There is no way that that is only taking 10 seconds. It has to be taking more, right, Michelle? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and pace of play is a big thing. I mean, we could have a whole nother, here we go. This is our our, our third podcast we could have on, on signs and letting pitchers and catchers call their own game um, or even just relaying strength and weakness from the, uh, of the hitters and from the dugout instead of every single pitch. But yeah, it, uh, it is a uh, part of an issue. I'd love to see more of the, uh, the upperclassmen be able to call their games and, and make a difference. Um, but I mean, again, I, I could talk about that for hours. Another thing I wanted to add real quick about the safety base. I've been a proponent of the, um, the safety base. I think it's needed in the game internationally. Uh, our sport uses it. There's just a lot of commotion at first base. Our first basemen uh, typically can be coming um, back to the bag, up to the bag, our second baseman covering. So all the different directions that defenders are coming toward first base, it just creates a lot of uh, action going on as the runner approaches. And we, unfortunately, as you mentioned earlier, Amanda, uh, we saw Aaliyah Jordan uh, after first base uh, go down with an injury. How about last year, Bailey Dowling as well for Alabama. She had a uh, season ending injury. She blew out her ACL. Uh, I know that Patrick Murphy is a big proponent of it. I really hope that that conversation continues um, to, to be talked about because I do think it's a rule change that ne we need. And before we go on to the number three spot, let's talk a little bit more about today. What's today, ladies? It's uh, it's 2-22-22, so the deuces are wild. Thought we'd talk a little bit about that. I was doing a little research on it. Um, you see some teams, Arkansas, other teams, they're always on their bill of their hat with their two fingers with the, the deuces wild. And if you actually look it up um, on the Google machine, it says deuces wild from a baseball and softball perspective is two balls, 
two strikes, two outs, and two runners on base. So the deuces are wild today here on the Seven Innings Podcast. <laughs> All right, let's roll down to the number three spot. Talk about Jocelyn Allo and hello, goodbye to the home run record, or at least it's tied for now. She ties Lauren Chamberlain. And I thought some of these, um, th- these numbers were very interesting. So her 95th home run comes over the weekend. Uh, Lauren Chamberlain hit 95 home runs in uh, 220 games. 607 at-bats. Her last home run came in her last career at-bat at Alabama um, because her career ended at Super Regionals um, in Alabama. So Jocelyn, however, she did it in five fewer games, 215 games, but more at-bats, 634 at-bats, 95 home runs tied with Lauren Chamberlain. And also that two-run home run that she hit, she also broke the RBI record at the University of Oklahoma. So that's now uh, 256 RBIs beating Lauren Chamberlain's home, uh, RBI record at 254. Yeah, I was doing a little research. So one, Patty Gassa was quoted saying, she's the best hitter I've ever seen, which is a bold statement because let's think about it. Patty Gasso hasn't just coached great hitters. She's been around the game for a long time. So if she's the best hitter that she's ever seen, that's the best hitter this game has ever seen. She's had 24 less games than Kautiana Malga, 46 fewer than Harper, 49 fewer than Newman. There's a lot of people on social media who believe that she should have an asterisk by her name because that 2020 season was cut short. Maddie, the fans can't see you at home, but I can see you just shaking your head vigorously. So tell me your thoughts on that. No, 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 no asterisk next to it. What she's been able to accomplish is incredible. I don't care. These girls have had to deal with so much off the field that I think that from a fan perspective, it's hard to, to realize that and to realize that you're talking about, you know, what, 18 to 22 year old young women and what Jocelyn Allo has done in her career is not just great for her. It's not just great for Oklahoma, but it is great for the sport of softball. And what I think is so special about this is the support that she is getting from the entire softball world, from Lauren Chamberlain herself, her might be her biggest fan. And and it kind of reminds me of the interaction between Bailey Hemphill and Kelly Kretschmann last year when Bailey Hemphill broke Kelly Kretschmann's record and the video uh, watching Kelly's reaction to her hitting that ball out of the park and just how proud she was, I I think is just a statement of these former players wanting the legacy, uh, uh, like the legacy of their program to live on and to grow the game of softball. I think it is so, so important. Lauren Chamberlain is one of the best ambassadors of the game of softball uh, really to, to ever come around. And I think that Jocelyn Allo has just, again, she she's done something that nobody could ever imagine ever happening, right? Uh, Lauren Chamberlain, one of the best home run hitters I've ever seen. Uh, one of the best people I've ever been around as well. And for Jocelyn to do what she's been able to do, uh, don't put that asterisk next to it. She deserves every bit of this home run record. Yeah. And I mean, I think what you have to really think about with the asterisk is, you know, she got, I think it was like in 2020, you get like 20 more games, or I think they only made it about 20 games. She's going to blow these numbers out of the water. So even if she didn't have that extra 20 games, I mean, we're not even close to in this season. She was going to beat it regardless based upon the rate that she's hitting the home run. So asterisk aside, I mean, 
it's going to be a lot harder to beat in the future because she had those 20 extra games. And let's not forget that Chamberlain was hurt. So, I mean, unfortunately, Chamber had, Chamberlain had less games. So she doesn't get an asterisk to say, hey, I would have hit more if I was healthy. It just doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. So no asterisk needed. And, you know, I think somebody like Alo, she gets so much credit for being a home run hitter. But I would also like to shout out for be her being a quality hitter, period, because she's still batting 500. She's still pumping the RBI numbers, even if it's not by the long ball. She's got 15 hits. Seven of those are her home runs. So she still hits for average, can go gap to gap power, only has two strikeouts. That's usually an indication of a, a big time home run hitters. They'll have tons and tons of strikeouts. She only has two. So she's putting bat on ball very, very often. Only two walks this year, too. So people aren't pitching around her. So she's a really, really talented hitter. So kudos to her for not only just having the natural ability to hit the ball to the park, but being a good mechanic, quality AB type of hitter at the plate as well. Well, the last thing that I'll add on top of everything that Kayla just talked about with Aloe and all of you guys have said is like, think about her mentality. There's so much pressure to be the one that is going up to break that record. And she is still hitting 500, hit seven home runs already. We're just in the second weekend of the season. And so she does not letting those expectations, the pressure build on her. She's going out and being like, this is who I am. I'm gunning for that record and I'm going to blow it out of the water. Yeah, I agree. Really, really good points. Um, a lot of times we see uh, folks going over uh, for records and it doesn't matter what sport it is. It takes them a while because of the pressure of it. And she just blew right through there. So the next question then is going to become um, how many RBIs is she going to end with as well? So the season record was set in 1995 by Laura Espinosa at 128 RBIs. That's a, that, that's a ton of RBIs. Um, and obviously we know our own Jenny Dalton Hill, uh, owns the NCAA career record at 328. She's 72 RBIs away from Jenny Dalton Hill's record. I don't know. I think it, it could be attainable with this type of team that Oklahoma has, because there's obviously going to be a lot, of, a lot of folks on base for her. So we'll see if she can hunt down that record as well. So that's going to take us to spot number four, Hutch Heaven. Let's talk a little bit about Coach Hutch from the University of Michigan, her 38th season. She tied Coach Candrea. She's got five wins so far this year. They're both at 1,674 wins. Whoa, that's a lot of games. Uh, Coach Candrea did his over a 34-year career. Coach Hutch, again, as I mentioned, in her 38th season, uh, winningest coach of all time. She goes to uh, the Duke Invitational this weekend. Northern Kentucky will be their first game, then a couple of games against Duke, Army, and then Northern Kentucky again. Um, ladies, any thoughts on, on coach Hutch? I know personally, um, playing against her, she, she's fun. And we obviously love talking to her. She's a, one of the best in the game, man. She's just one of a kind. I don't think you could have a conversation without Hutch and have a better appreciation for the sport, where it started, where it's come from. Um, let's just talk about her career a little bit. I don't think many people realize that she actually played at Michigan state and her entire coaching career, mostly majority has been spent at the University of Michigan. When I got to talk with her this weekend, she told me two stories that really stuck out that I'd like to share with you guys. One, it's that her and Mike Candrea have a golf date at the end of this season. They already have it on the calendar. And she said the last time that they played around, he beat her up pretty good. And that she is going to get there a week early in practice for this match. And I said, Hutch, you do realize that he's going to be practicing all year long because he doesn't have a team to coach. 
And she, she just like stopped and it's very rare that you catch her off guard. She stopped and she giggled for a second. The second story she told me was about her appreciation for coach Enquist, because I don't think you could talk about what legacy Mike Candrea has left and Carol Hutchins has left without talking about Sue Enquist and the impact that uh, she's had on our game. And if you remember the only national championship that Michigan has came against coach Enquist. So they have a very deep rivalry, but she talked about being a Michigan kid coming out to Southern California and Sue Enquist is a surfer. She gets up every morning and surfs and how she invited her to come and surf and Hutch said quickly she learned she wasn't trying to teach her how to surf she was trying to drown her because coaches coach Enquist is out there surfing catching waves and Hutch said she was like just like had her arms up in the air like help help and she said they got done and they got out of the water and and Hutch looks at her and she goes you know you're a hell of a softball coach but you're a terrible surf instructor and so what I took away from our conversation wasn't just the legacy that she's leaving on softball, but that this sport is really relationship based and that Hutch's players admire her, the relationships that she has with the other coaches that she's shared memories with inspires all of us to just be better people. And one of the legacies that she's most proud of leaving is what they do for breast cancer research every single year. Um, they have a, a big event at Michigan um, where they get to raise funds for breast cancer research. Last year, they raised almost a hundred they raised over $100,000 online. They went completely digital, completely virtual, and they were still still able to raise $100,000 online. So she's really excited this year uh, to get the chance to do it in person. And they have a goal of raising $200,000 uh, at their event this year. So when that comes, I'm sure we'll talk about it. But those are just a couple stories that I wanted to say about Coach Hutch. Yeah, definitely not one to talk about herself at all. Um, she is in the mix with, you know, we, uh, the other thing that happened is all these coaching changes. So she's been around a while and she was with Ralph weekly coaching against him. She was with Lou Harris champer, uh, two coaches that decided to retire. So then that brings in new coaches and coaching changes that you know, we we're also going to talk about today. And one of which is Chris Malvo going to Tennessee and you look at how he was so successful at Missouri with building their offense. And now after two weekends with Tennessee, Tennessee is only hitting 248 as a team, which to me is very surprising, especially because they had a solid offensive team last year. I thought that they would, um, just be hitting better to this point. I mean, 248 is not a great team average. And then the other change was JT D'Amico going to Georgia. He, he is known of course, for his defense. Georgia's fielding percentage this year is 973. They've only committed eight errors. Last year, their fielding percentage was 955. So he already is making an impact on that program. Georgia, not a team that we talk about a ton, but one of those teams, remember last year, they um, gave they, they gave Oklahoma their first loss. They can beat anybody. But I, I just comparing those two, like the offensive side with Coach Malvo and then the defensive side with Coach D'Amico and already making impacts on their team. Absolutely. Great job, Amanda. Rounding out the coaching changes as well as capping uh, Coach Hutch and uh, everything that she's done in that four spot. Let's go ahead and move down to number five in the lineup and talk about the Evo. Uh-oh, what's going on in Texas? We've, uh, <laughs> we, we unfortunately got to see a team that um, stubbed their toe a little bit here in Clearwater, Texas, going 0-5. But remember, ladies, this is a team that is we, we know they're talented, right? Day one of the season, I think, might have summed up how their, their season has gone so far. Their first game of the year, they beat Clemson four to nothing. 
and side note, Texas has never dropped an opening game. It's, it's a pretty staggering statistic. So they've never lost their opening game in the season. So they beat Clemson four um, to nothing. Clemson was ranked 14th at the time. But then later that day, they end up losing to Florida Gulf Coast University. So a little bit of inconsistency there. Um, and then here in Clearwater, their schedule, I mean, they really were thrown into the fire. Florida State, number six, Florida State. We know how they play. We already recapped that. Auburn at 25, they lost two to one. Excuse me, uh, two to uh, six to two. UCLA, then they lost to UCF and then Notre Dame on the last day. Um, but for me, it really wasn't as much about um, always their play. There were a lot of defensive errors. There were a lot of um, trying to figure out, you know, pitching, uh, you know, a, a lot of things going on in the three facets of the game. But I want to talk a little bit here in this segment about chemistry, communication, some of the things that we saw. And it's so easy to kind of tumble in the wrong direction when you're losing. Um, but we also saw teams that lost that still were very positive, And you could see that, that the chemistry was going on in the dugout. So what are your thoughts about what you saw um, this weekend also about the, the chem communication and the chemistry? Yeah, um, I saw Texas twice, and I, I saw them against Auburn, and uh, let's see who else did I see them against. All these games are running together. You call eight in a weekend, and um, but in the two games that I saw them, I thought that they looked flat first and foremost. And they were just back on their heels, um, not a ton of energy. They just kind of felt a little bit lost out there, and I think that's one of the things that shows uh, your first sign of maybe not knowing your team's identity, not necessarily figuring out the cohesiveness of your team yet. Um, and then all of a sudden, you start to lose, and then that bridge breaks a little bit more aggressively and starts to get worse and worse. So for me, I looked at a Texas team that, like you said, has all the talent in the world, has a deep pitching staff, which just flat out got hit by the way this weekend. I mean, they gave up 75 hits and 73 innings on the season so far. They're just getting hit, leaving the balls over the middle of the plate. So as you know, your backs are against the wall, things start to crumble. I don't know. I've been on teams where you, you know, you start to point fingers and people aren't doing their jobs and then there's frustration. And then you have players maybe like a J Janae Jefferson, who is expected to be this incredible player. That's probably wants to run through a wall doing whatever she can for her team, but she's not doing it. She's only batting 313 so far in the year. She just hasn't been able to connect. So a lot of things can go wrong early in the year. And the good news for Texas is there's a lot of season left. They have talent to, to make a run and to figure it out, but I just, first and foremost, the energy was lacking and the team chemistry was 100% lacking for Texas to me. Look, I think we all know this about Texas. Individually, they're talented. They, like, we, we can't deny it. They are talented. Jane Jefferson has the chance to be only the second four-time All-American at Texas. I think when a team struggles like Texas does, you have to look at leadership and leadership can come from different people, it can come from the coaching staff or it can come from seniors. Heck, it could come from freshmen. It seems to me like Texas is struggling with their identity, who they are, and they do not have a leadership. They don't have leadership. They don't have, I'm trying to watch my words and be nice about this because I can be very judgmental at times, but it just seems like they are blowing whichever way the wind blows. And if they want to turn their season around, it's got to come from either that coaching staff somehow, or it's got to come from a group of players who are going to sit everyone down and say, look, what do we want out of this season? Because right now, when you look at Texas, you do not see a team that wants to win. Just 
just blatantly, they do not look like they care about winning softball games or not. That's my two cents. Well, no, and I, I do think it's an important conversation because we've all said this. We all know this. You look at paper. They are an extremely talented team. You go through their entire roster. They are stacked. They, they can pitch. They should be fielding better than what they're fielding. They can hit. Um, I, I think what it comes down to is it's the X factor, how important it is that you like the people to your left and to your right, that you want to be on the field with them, that you want to be in that environment every day. And, you know, I think more and more we're seeing coaches do, you know, team bonding and building uh, exercises and understanding that that's, that's really one of the, uh, the, the fourth facet of the game is the team chemistry. How do you get along? How much do you want to win with the right people that, that you're standing around? And so it is very interesting. We're seeing more and more of it with sports psychiatrists. We're also seeing the um, the ability for teams to go out and do a lot of team bonding. And Amanda, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are of thinking that Texas and Oklahoma State are two of the teams that were talked about the most because they have such deep pitching staffs and rosters, but they're also two of the teams that have the most transfers. And so that, of course, is going to bring people who have come from different coaches, different cultures, and then you're trying to get them to mesh together. And we saw that for like a team like Louisiana last year, too, who had a ton of transfers on their team. So I'm wondering when just reflecting back to last weekend and two of the teams that just didn't have the best records at the end of the weekend was Oklahoma State and Texas, if that is having anything to do with their chemistry and connection. Uh, really quick, Amanda, I'm really glad you brought up Oklahoma State because I had the same thought. Oklahoma State underperformed this weekend, but I called their game against Washington. It was a seven inning back and forth game. The difference to me between that Texas team and the Oklahoma State team is Oklahoma State brought so much energy. I mean, there was a close play. Kenny Gajewski came out of the dugout, threw his hat because he didn't like to play at the plate. Like he was going to bat for his team. And you could feel that. You could feel that emotion, that really like true desire to want to win with your team. And I felt that for Oklahoma State and I didn't feel it for Texas. And I, I think that their problems might be a little bit different right now um, because when Kelly Maxwell is on the circle for Oklahoma state, they're a different team. So I think they just got to figure out, you know, some deeper pitching, but for me, the energy effort want the will to win was there for Oklahoma state just didn't play on the field the way that they wanted to. I think that energy not being there. Sorry, Michelle. I, I was just saying that that energy not being there is something that's kind of surprising, especially being at an environment like that. I almost feel like the environment provided the energy for a lot of these teams. Typically when you're in the preseason or even some of the midweeks, as you go through season as a team, you kind of have to come together and figure out ways to, to bring that energy to the field. But the fans, the atmosphere, just the fact that there was like top competition happening all over the place, that energy was already brought there. So for me, it was just a matter of, you know, you kept looking, you kept waiting for, for the snowball effect to, to stop. And it just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling. And they never were able to figure it out as that weekend went on. But like you said, there's still a lot of time. There's still a lot of softball left. So we'll see what happens. I do want to point out, Michelle, because they're your cowgirls, Texas and Oklahoma state did lose in very different ways. So I don't want it to be like, I do like, I want to make sure that that is pointed out because just Texas did not play well. And Oklahoma state had the energy and stuff like you guys pointed out, but just didn't come away with the record. Yeah, no, there, you definitely saw a lot of different things in different directions. Um, Cowgirls had some good moments, lost to some good teams. But I think we could say that about every club that showed up here in Clearwater. That's really what this tournament's about. It's about playing the best early. It's about getting your young kids that uh, women's college World Series vibe and feel. And uh, 
you know, I, I think all these coaches know at the end of the season, it's going to pay dividends. And we hope, you know, for, for Texas, the same thing, they're going to have a chance to redeem themselves. They have a midweek game against North Texas on Wednesday. Um, and then they have the Texas uh, classic that'll be uh, starting on Thursday and Arizona state will be coming in to Austin. Uh, so we'll see how, how the horns can bounce back um, this weekend. So let's go ahead and slide down to the number six spot. Talk a little bit about the nutter coming up in Palm Springs. Ladies, all right, we're, we're talking about how good the games were in Clearwater. There are going to be some outstanding games in the desert. A couple of the ones that I'm really interested in. It looks like Saturday is stacked. Um, for me, the biggest question is going to be, how does the Oklahoma, Arizona, Oklahoma, Tennessee, they play back-to-back at 10 a.m. Pacific time against Arizona and then back to back going right up against Tennessee at 1230. Um, and then we'll we'll discuss a couple of other matchups here in a second. But what do you guys, lady, what, what do you ladies think about um, Oklahoma? Are they going to be challenged? No, they will not be challenged. Just that's those are my thoughts. I'm just wondering if you're one of the pitchers who's facing Jocelyn Allo, if you actually want to be the person to give up the 96 home run. So you're on repeat, like you can really become famous because that video is going to be what retweeted, like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of times, or if your approach is, we're just going to put her on, or if you want to get her out, I don't know. But my personal thought is that Oklahoma will not be challenged. And I hope somebody proves me wrong. The games that I have an asterisk next to that I'm excited for are Missouri versus Oregon. I think that's going to be a really good test for both of those teams. I think that right now the world probably thinks that they're pretty evenly matched, but I'm excited to see that. Um, UCLA plays both Tennessee and Missouri. I think any time that you get a Pac-12 versus SEC game, there's a lot of energy. And when you look at the difference between competing in Clearwater, that's a very southerny bias. A lot of SEC fans, a lot of Florida State fans. Well, in California, it's a very different feel. There's a ton of UCLA fans and there's a ton of Oklahoma fans because most of their rosters come from South, from Southern California. But hands down, the game that I am looking forward to the most at the Mary Nutter is Northwestern versus Washington. To me, this is going to be a fantastic test for both programs. I'm not sure if you guys just saw um, Heather Tarr just lost her dad last year. Her mom was terminally ill and she just announced that her mom did pass away. And so I know that that's probably going to be super heavy for that Washington team and for coach Tarr this weekend. I have no idea if she's going to travel with the team or not, maybe. Um, But to me, I think that Northwestern Washington game is going to feel like a world series, super regional matchup in California in February. And I'm really looking forward to seeing who takes that one. Yeah, absolutely going to be a battle in the desert. Uh, I think another, um, another matchup I'm interested in is Oregon Northwestern. I think that's going to be a great showdown, um, but definitely UCLA, Missouri as well. So a lot of good games. Yeah. I was just going to say that I hope that we see Brooke Yanez for Oregon. And I hope that we see Ashley Rogers for Tennessee, because I think for both of those teams going into a weekend, like the Mary Nutter that could make or break their weekend. Ashley Rogers only pitched a couple of innings in Clearwater and then unfortunately came out, um, and didn't, we, we didn't get to see her pitch anymore. So, um, that really could make a huge difference for both of those teams this weekend. Yeah, I circled two teams, um, Oregon and Mizzou, because I think this weekend could be a huge factor in whether or not these two teams or types of teams like this host regionals and super regionals. Because if you're Mizzou and you're playing Oregon, Washington and UCLA this weekend, first of all, that's a really tough run. But if you can go sneak two W's against Pac-12 teams, that could go on your resume and a reason why we should host 
uh, come postseason. So those are really big games and it seems early and it's a lot of pressure on those early games, but this is a, a really important time where you get in that conference to conference matchup that you can really sit there and say, Hey, this is why the PAC 12 is better than the SEC or the SEC is better than the PAC. So some big games, big opportunities. All right. And rounding it out again, well, our, our thoughts and prayers are with uh, coach Tar and, and, and her family, the program um, as she deals with uh, some, some personal um, loss. So let's go ahead and slide down into the number uh, seven spot. How about finding number two? Let's talk a little bit about um, aces, deuces, right? As Coach Hutch likes to say, we've got a lot of programs, um, Alabama for one with Fouts and Kilfoyle. How about Oklahoma State with Maxwell and Ellish? Ellish getting into her her pitching form after, after two years off, also Morgan Day. Um, how important is it for a number two versus a pitch by committee or pitch by staff? We see that with Washington, with Gabby playing and then it's all hands on deck. Um, what are your thoughts on how important it is to have a number two versus to have to pitch by committee after your ace takes the circle? I think it's huge to be able to have two different pitchers that complement each other really well, because from an offensive standpoint, it makes it really difficult to have to prepare for two different types of pitching, whether it be one, maybe a rise ball and the other one's a drop ball pitcher. You kind of have to have that in the back of your mind before you step up into the plate who you're going up against. And when it comes to preparing for these teams too, you spend all week practicing, you know, a, a drop ball and a rise ball, two completely different swings. Um, the, the, the deuces, you know, the pair of deuces that I was really, Really, really impressed with uh, this past weekend was Virginia Tech and Keila Rochard and their freshman Emma Lemley. Uh, they might not have come out with the win, but they are very, very, very tough pitchers to hit against. Uh, a lot of spin, a lot of movement. We already know that Keila Rochard is one of the best in the country. And, and I always try to think, what would be my game plan going up against pitchers? And if I have a hard time even coming up with what a game plan would be to go up against them, then you know that they're really good, right? Because the ball's just moving all over the place. And I think for, for a team like Virginia Tech to have somebody like Lemley to be able to back up Rochard, I think they're going to be really dangerous down the stretch of season. I just want to give a shout out to Allie Shipman because I know you wouldn't Maddie, but I think if you're trying to figure out what your game plan is going to be against those two, maybe just text your sister because she seemed to figure it out this weekend. So, so hacking at the rise ball, apparently a is a hereditary <laughs> trait because it was about up at her eyeballs and she just launched that thing. So my rise ball 11 heart was so proud watching that one lead the yard. Yeah. I hear that's genetic. That does maybe get passed through from generation to generation, but the way that you talked about Lemley and the way that she threw against Alabama was very similar to the way that Jordy ball threw against UCLA. I mean, those are big time teams that they're going up against the best teams that they've ever pitched against in their lives. And not just the results that they were getting with the tons of strikeouts, but their rise ball was so similar, explosive, getting those teams to just chase. And speaking of Jordy ball and Oklahoma, I think a big question mark for Oklahoma with G Juarez um, graduating last year was who's going to pitch for them because we know that they can hit. We know that they had have one of the best offenses in the country, but the question mark was, you know, who's going to step up. Well, um, new slash Oklahoma hasn't even given up an earned run. We talk so much about aloe and the home run chase, but 10 games, zero earned runs. So Jordy ball, Nicole may hope Trotwine, they're all stepping up for Oklahoma and they haven't played the toughest of tough schedules. They'll definitely get challenged more this weekend, but I mean, come on, they've not even given up an earned run yet. And you know, there's a lot of run rules, so they don't pitch a full seven innings, but still. 
Yeah, it's that's what you call a three-headed monster, Amanda. And that's even tougher than just having a one-two punch to try and plan for again, because you're thinking potentially you're going to face a different type of pitcher three days in a row in a three-game series. And that's tough because, you know, you only have so much time to prepare as a Harry. You can only watch so much film and, you know, as easy it is to sit there and look at it and be like, oh, well, you just come up with three different game plans. So it doesn't really work that way. So uh, really tough. The other team that's got a potential for a three-headed monster is Florida right now. They're using all three pitchers, Elizabeth Hightower, Lexi Delbury, the freshman, and then Natalie Lugo. They're another team that's going to have depth in the pitching circle. And then uh, another team that I'm looking for an interesting pitching dynamic is that Washington pitching dynamic where Gabby Plain is definitely ace pitcher one a star putter in the circle in your big games but I think they're going to use their entire staff just to fill in the gaps their pitch by committee on the back side so uh, that's another situation where it's tough to prepare as a hitter because you don't know what order the staff's going to go in on that day two game you don't really have a ton of intel on each of them it's it's confusing as a hitter um, so you know sometimes on those, I'm not going to lie to you. As a hitter, you just go in and say, you know what? I'm just going to go up and trust my stuff, not worry too much about a game plan and just go attack a strike that they throw me. All right. And talking about who's in that two spot on uh, 2-22-22. I love, love the way we're bringing the twos into the, the podcast here uh, this afternoon. All right. Let's go ahead and slide into the, um, the eight spot. You know what that is. It's time to shag some stats. This week on Shaggin Stats. All right, who's up first? Who's gonna who's gonna throw out the first stat, Jen? I'll lead off since I've never done that in my life. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna talk about Texas AM. Whoop! I just feel like I needed to do that. <laughs> they are leading the NCAA in both batting average. Haley Lee is hitting 655, and Texas AM is a team we haven't really talked about much at all on this podcast. But they're also leading the country in ERA. Mackenzie Herzog has a zero ERA. Now, mind you, there are multiple people who have a zero ERA, but when you happen to go to NCAA.com, she's the first name on that list in the zero column. So AM has the highest single person batting average and Haley Lee and lowest ERA. Yeah, and they haven't lost a game. They were off to their best start in several years. So just gonna throw that out there. Uh, my stat goes to Troy's. <laughs> to Troy's pitcher, Leanna Johnson. She has 69 strikeouts, leads the country with that 69 strikeout mark. And also we've only had two weekends, but she's gotten Sunbelt pitcher of the week for both weekends. Yeah, to follow up to Leanna Johnson had a great season last season, of course, making all the way to regionals at Tuscaloosa with Troy. Um, but I'm going to break the rules. I kind of have two. One of them is a follow up from last week uh, talking about Mia Davidson. She hit her 72nd home run, which officially makes her the new all time SEC home run leader, passing up Lauren Hager. Uh, but my other stat, I'm going to kind of look forward to a matchup this weekend between Louisiana's batting average. Their team batting average is four. 53 going up against Alabama this weekend with the team ERA of 0.89. So that one should be a good showdown. All right. So on this podcast, Shag and Stats, I think I've had Kayla Kowalik as my Shag and Stat multiple times. And it just felt right today that I'm going to give my Shag and Stat to a Kowalik, but it's not Kayla. It's her sister, Gabby. Her twin sister was the A10 player of the week. She's from St. Louis. She hit 533 on the weekends, eight hits, four, four RBI and two triples. So uh, congratulations to Gabby Kowalik making the show for the first time. 
I love it. I love it. All right. And I'm going to go with Michaela Edenfield. We talked earlier about that home run shot. I'm going to say the stat is 270. That's how far the ball went. She's hitting 458, four home runs on the year. And it was that big blast in the UCLA game that helped, uh, helped the Knowles win that game. And let's go ahead and roll into the number nine spot, ladies, player of the week. I know our stats could, probably could have sounded like uh, some ammunition for who we're going to pick for player of the week, but I'm going to go from the hitters to the pitchers. I'm going to talk a little bit about my thought for player of the week uh, for the seven innings podcast uh, is, is Catherine Sandercock. She was uh, outstanding in Clearwater, 21 and two thirds innings pitched an ERA below one, four wins and a save. And as Beth Mowens liked to, to coin it, she was part of a Kono, a combined no hitter against UCF. So uh, that's my thoughts on player of the week. Who else you got out there? I've got Jocelyn Allo. We've talked about her enough, but here are her stats the weekend. They're impressive. Nine for 15 with five home runs on the weekend, two doubles and 11 RBIs. Those numbers are just hard to beat. She was my pick too, Jen. I mean, and she ties the record. I, like she was for sure my pick. What do you guys got, Kayla and Maddie? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if this is going to win player of the week, but you know, after I called the Clearwater tournament, I just had to sit there and who was my player of that tournament? Who was the best hitter specifically that I saw? And it was Bailey Klingler from Washington. I mean, she's just a stud and this is kind of like a stats aside, um, thought, but every single time that she came up and there was an opportunity, uh, for her to hit something that was either a game winning hit, a game tying hit, she did it. She just clutch. She has five home runs on the year. I mean, I just, she's a stud. I, I don't have any stats to like say, but she would just get my vote from who was the best player that I saw this weekend. It was Bailey Klingler. Okay. I think you and I are kind of on the same page on this and you guys have mentioned so many great players that had fantastic weekends. Um, but I think to, to Kaylee Harding, and of course we all know that she got that walk-off hit against UCLA, but we all know that our game is so much a game of failure. And how do you deal with that? She was over on the entire day leading up to that at that. And she was 0 for 3 in the UCLA game with two strikeouts. But I think that really speaks volumes to just the mentality and the confidence that that Florida State team has. Uh, and she did not get down on herself, ended up coming big, coming up big when her team needed it the most. So for me, that's something that just really stuck in my mind and, and stood out from last weekend. All right. So uh, a lot of amazing play this week, but I think we're going to have to go with Jocelyn Allo just because she sets the record. She's got that 95th home run in the books looking to, to break it uh, this coming week. We'll see if she'll be able to do that at the Nutter. Um, so a, a really, really good podcast, ladies. I appreciate everybody with their time, our passion for our sport. Uh, Jocelyn Allo, the seven innings player of the week in our Deuces Wild podcast. Thank you.